Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. My name is Tim and it's a joy to be with you this morning. Now, just as a heads up, uh, clearly we've got all the kids in here. They are welcome to stay for the entire thing. If they are making noise, don't worry. I will try to press on and not be distracted. If you want to leave, you can leave, but never feel any pressure from me to leave, okay? Even if others give you those dirty looks, it's like, it's okay, you can stay. We'll press on. It's okay. Uh, I'll spend a few minutes, but uh, let's jump in. Hey, I reckon some stories get better and better the more that you engage with them. And so, for example, uh, when we were growing up, my sister and I used to love watching animated movies together. I'm thinking uh, anything from Disney to Pixar to DreamWorks, anything at all, we loved it, though our two favourite movies were Ice Age and Emperor's New Groove. Now, I'm not going to say that these are the highest forms of art or anything, but they were good. Uh, Like, my sister and I would happily watch these things multiple times. I think we probably watched both at least 20 or 30 times together. But the reason we loved them so much was, I think, twofold. On the one hand, we we got to watch our favourite bits and relive them. And the quotes, oh, the quotes. Still to this day, uh, my wife, sorry, my sister and I, I can sort of just, in a very serious moment, sort of lean over and whisper some quote from Sid the Sloth or Emperor Cusco and both just break out in laughter. So we loved reliving the favourite moments. But we also loved, you know, each time you watched these movies, you you would notice something fresh. Uh, Even if it was just small, you kind of noticed something extra and it just, it added to your appreciation of the whole. I think in some ways the Christmas story can be a little like this. You know, for some of us, I suspect a few, it's all new. But for most of us, we've been reading this story. We've been listening to this story. We've been maybe even watching this story for years and years and years. And yet we still love it. We've all got our favourite bits, whether it's the angelic choir, whether it's the shepherds watching their sheep by night, whether it's the wise men coming from the east, or whether it's the baby in the manger, uh, there is no denying that the Christmas story is enchanting. And yet, every year, I've found that God is able to make it fresh and help reveal new things to me. Uh, This is the ninth talk in a row that I've given at Christmas time for nine years. I often joke that Christmas talks are a little bit like a Happy Meal, by which I mean it's the same thing every single year. you just got to throw in a different toy to keep it fresh. Uh, either that or you hope people forgot the toy that you gave them last year. Uh, but I, I say all that in jest, really I do, because every year I read the same story again and again and again. And this year is no different. And I notice that God is able to reveal fresh things to me. So for me, this year in particular... The fresh things that I've noticed, number one, is the message of the angel, and then number two, the response of Mary. The message of the angel and the response of Mary. Now, these things may not be fresh revelations for you, but my prayer today is that you get more joy than a Happy Meal. Uh, Instead, my prayer for you is that God might help us, like Mary, to receive the message of her son, and then also that we might know the joy of being highly favoured by God. So let me jump in. I'll take you through each of those things real quick. First of all, the message of the angel. You'll notice the angel says a number of things to Mary, but two of them in particular stuck out to me about the son that she's going to give birth to. Number one, Mary's baby is going to be an eternal king. 
the baby's going to be an eternal king. And so in verse 31 to 32, we read this. Help me out, guys. It says, You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Right? So the baby, in addition to having the name Jesus, will be called the Son of the Most High. Now, I expect that, that when we hear that, most of us assume that Son of the Most High, well, it kind of means Son of God, and therefore, it's really talking about the divinity of this child. The thing is, that phrase, Son of God, it, it certainly can mean that He's divine, and we'll see in a moment it, it does that later, but here, probably not so much. You see, for anyone raised on the Old Testament, like Mary would have been, this term, Son of God, actually had royal overtones. It, it kind of had kingly meaning to it. And so, for example, listen to what God promised Israel's most famous king, King David, about 1,000 years before this birth was foretold. It says, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, again, this is God speaking to David, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Listen to this. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, uh, it's easy to look at that and go, oh, it's talking about Jesus. Talk and yes, it, it is in an ultimate sense, but really, in its immediate context, it, it's talking about all of David's royal descendants. And so beginning with King Solomon, David's son, all the kings of Israel became known as the Son of God. Now, that seems strange to you. You have to appreciate something about ancient culture. You see, today, vocationally speaking, few sons will grow up to do what their father did. Likewise, few daughters will grow up to do what their mothers did. But in the ancient world, it was far more common than this. And so in the ancient world, if your father was a farmer, the son was a farmer. If your father was a baker, the son was a baker. In many ways, the father determined the identity, the training, and the vocation of the son. And so again, that's a key part as to what is going on with the Davidic kings, the kings in the line of King David. See, no one thought that the kings of Israel were actual gods. Yes, son of God, but no one thought they were gods. The emphasis is less on their godship, more on their sonship. In other words, they were supposed to be imitators of the true king, God himself. And so in the biblical worldview, God was the ultimate monarch. He was the ultimate king. And so as Don Carson writes, the reign of the Davidic king is meant to reflect God's reign, including his passion for justice, his commitment to the covenant, his hatred of idolatry, and his concern for the oppressed. Uh, whenever I mow our lawn at home, just yesterday, in fact, my son Tyler, he was over there, maybe he's gone, uh, he loves to help me out. He's even got his own pretend mower and his own pretend blower, although the blower actually does have a little bit of air to it. It's totally ineffective, but he loves it. So he always wants to help. Dad, can I help? Of course you can, buddy. He's even started wanting to actually hold the big stuff. And so just yesterday, he's walking along with this thing three times himself, the leaf blower. Super cute, but boy, does it slow things down. <laughs> That's what it's supposed to be a little bit like with the kings of Israel. 
It's supposed to be a case of like father, like son. Now, God didn't need the help. But as the kings of Israel, the sons of David, as they ruled, they were supposed to point people to, supposed to imitate the true king, God himself, as he established his kingdom. The problem was none of the Davidic kings ever really lived up to that high calling. And so rather than things getting better and better and better towards a kingdom of peace and prosperity and righteousness being upheld forever, actually things end up getting worse and worse and worse until the kingdom divides and the people are exiled into Babylon. But the hope of a true son of God was never lost. A king who would rule like the king of heaven. Through everything that happened in subsequent years, the flame of hope for a righteous king carried on until one day, in what was most likely 4 BC, an angel came to Mary with this message about her boy. She says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever and his kingdom will never end. Out here... At last is a king who would truly rule like God, a king that people could set their hopes upon, a king that people could trust in. Why? Because he was going to establish God's kingdom. A place in which peace and justice would be held forever. And so in many ways, the baby in the manger will grow up to rock the world. That's why we sing joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room in heaven and nature sing. As we look around the world, it's clear that our world is hurting. That our world could actually do with a kingdom of peace and righteousness. And so we pray, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. At Christmas time, the king was born. But one day he will return to establish his kingdom once and for all. And so we pray, your kingdom come. Here's the first little thing I noticed about the angel's message. The second thing I noticed about the angel's message about the baby is that he's going to be a divine savior. He's going to be a divine savior. Verse 34, Mary responds, how will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. Now, just as, a, as an aside... This response is a good clue that Mary has not interpreted the angel's words about her son, the son of God, in the way that we normally do. In other words, notice she's not asking a question about the incarnation. She's not saying, wow, how, how is it that I, a human being, could possibly give birth to God in the flesh? That's not her question. It's a mechanical question. How could I, as a virgin, give birth to a boy that's going to grow up to be a king? Uh, but the angel gives the theological answer. And as he does, he, he really presses home what it will really mean for, babies, for Mary's baby to be a son of God. And as we'll see, it, it's not just that he will be a king, though he will. He'll also be divine. And so in verse 35, we read this. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Mary's baby will have no earthly father. Why? Well, because as we confess in the Apostles' Creed, he was what? Conceived by the Virgin, no, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And so the boy truly would be the Son of God. 
And I think it's, it's helpful to appreciate how much this really takes us into the heart of who God really is. I think we can maybe point out a few different things. First, notice it, it takes us into the heart of the Trinity. Uh, for some of you, I know this will be super basic. And in some ways, it is so fundamental to the Christian faith that it is basic. But you never see this in the Old Testament, or you only ever see glimpses of it. But in the Christmas story, you get an insight into who God is. There is one God, but He exists in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's the Son that takes on flesh and steps into our world. But notice, notice also what that tells us about the humility of this God. Or to put it differently, notice how the most high becomes the most low. Uh, when my daughter, is she in here? I don't know if she's here as well. She's over there. The sun's gone. Uh, our daughter, Brooke, when she was first born, uh, there are a couple complications with the birth, and so Emma was whisked away into surgery. But I'll never forget those first few hours cradling Brooke in my arms uh, as Emma was in surgery, and I was left all alone. In particular, I was struck by how vulnerable she was. She was tiny, absolutely minute. Her breathing was so rapid. I had no idea what I was doing. In fact, there was even a part of me that felt like the hospital staff were irresponsible for leaving me alone with this child. And like, do they not know that I have no idea what to do here? Isn't it astonishing that that's how God enters our world? The most high becomes the most low and entrusts himself to an inexperienced teenage mum. That level of humility is almost irresponsible. The most high made himself killable. Why? Well, actually, this is the third thing, and I think we get a bit of a clue in the story. Some might even say we get a bit of an Easter egg in the Christmas message. See, back, back in verse 31... Um, the angel tells Mary, you're to call him Jesus. Now, Jesus means God saves, the Lord saves. But in Matthew's version of this, uh, we're told actually that the, the angel adds, call him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. In other words, that's why the Most High had to become the most low. He had to become low so that he could save his people from their sins. And as the gospel story unfolds, it becomes clear that how is that achieved? It's achieved as he goes to the cross and he dies for people like you and I. J.I. Packer, he writes this, bound up in the Christmas message of the incarnation is the Easter message of the atonement. For if Jesus was not God made man, then we remain in our sins. But the reality of the first advent is that God in all his riches became poor so that we might become rich in Christ. For Jesus, the nativity was a riches to rags story. But for us, it marks the opening scene of history's greatest rags to riches story, the dawning of light and the hope of life for those dead in sin. But again, bound up in the Christmas story is an Easter egg. The angel tells Mary, your son, the son of God, is going to become the most, most, most low so that those who trust in him might be made high. Or in the words of Packer, he will experience a riches to rags story so that people like you and I can have a rags to riches story. So there you have the angel's message. I said there were two things that stuck out to me. I wanna, I'll close or kind of wrap things up 
we're just drawing our attention to Mary's response to the message. We skipped over it before, but I noticed four separate stages to Mary's response. And in some ways, this is just descriptive. In in other words, I guess I want to be careful not to press this too hard and say, all of us need to go through these same four steps in our journey to faith, because she's unique. We're not all the same as Mary. On the other hand, there, there is sometimes benefit in noticing how do others make the journey so that those of us who want to follow in her footsteps can. So let me, as we close, just draw your attention to these four different steps. Number one, thoughtful consideration. Thoughtful consideration. Verse 28, she says, The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Now, the first time you read that, it is easy to assume that Mary is greatly troubled by his appearance. And there's good precedent for that. Actually, this angel, Gabriel, he's appeared twice already in the Bible. Once is to Daniel in the Old Testament. The other is to Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad. That's in the uh, same chapter, actually. Both times, those guys basically wet their pants. Right? They're scared of the angels appearing. But with Mary, it's not the appearance of the angel. It's the words of the angel. And so Gabriel says, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. And then we're told Mary wondered what kind of greeting this might be. That word wonder means to think or to consider something carefully. In other words, she sets her mind to it. She considers it. She rolls it over and over again and repeats it to herself, thinking to herself, what, what does it mean that I, of everyone, might be highly favoured by God? Now, that kind of thoughtful consideration is often the first step in someone coming to finally decide to trust in Jesus. See, for Mary... Uh, To be highly favoured by God meant that she would have the awesome and, let's face it, somewhat terrifying privilege of giving birth to God in the flesh. Uh, But the Apostle Paul picks up that same word and actually applies it to all believers. It's the only other time in the New Testament where that word is used. It's Ephesians 1 verse 6 if you want to look it up. But he says that those who trust in Christ can also be highly favoured. And so therefore, if you're new to the things of Christianity, let me encourage you. Why not give it thoughtful consideration this Christmas? I make no claim to be an angel, but the message of the gospel is that you too can be highly favoured by God. But thoughtful consideration is often followed by honest questions. And that's what Mary asked. This is stage two, honest questions. In verse 34, she says, Well, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? Uh, Don't miss the significance of that question. The fact that Mary asks the question in the first place is maybe just a a bit of a gentle rebuke to what we sometimes have, which is chronological snobbery, almost looking back on people like Mary and assuming, oh, they were all kind of ancient peasants that were all gullible and predisposed to believe in miracles. No, no, no. Mary, she may have been less scientifically advanced than we are, but she knows that what the angel has said is not humanly possible. She knows that that doesn't work that way. And so she asks the question, how's it going to be? But notice the tone of the question as well. It's an honest question seeking an honest answer. And how she responded, rewarded? Well, she gets the answer. Which perhaps points to the fact that in Christianity, it's okay to have doubts. 
It's okay to ask questions. You know, when, when you become a Christian, God does not expect you to leave your brain at the door and then just believe in blind faith. No, no, no. We're expected to ask questions, to look for evidence, and then believe on the basis of the Word of God. A good contrast to this is perhaps Zechariah. Again, John the Baptist's dad. Uh, you meet him earlier in the chapter. And the angel Gabriel comes to John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah, and says, Hey, your wife, Zech- uh, Elizabeth, she's going to have a baby. She's super old, but it's still going to happen. Just trust me. Now, Zechariah asks a question, and in response to the question, he gets nine months' time out. Uh, now, why? Well, it's not because he asked the questions. Questions are fine. If we had more time, I could take you through it, but it's because the question reveals he has a closed mind. In other words, sometimes questions are seeking honest answers. Sometimes we ask questions actually just to rule out the possibility of answers. Those who ask honest questions often get their questions answered. It leads to the third step. Third step in Mary's journey is humble surrender. Humble surrender. In verse 38, we read this. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. It's easy to miss the magnitude of what Mary is surrendering to there. Among other things, she's surrendering to the shame that will inevitably come from having a child out of wedlock in that culture. Remember, she has no idea that God is going to send the angel Gabriel to Joseph as well and he's going to take her home. She thinks she's doing this alone and yet she says, all right, let's do it. She also surrenders to the angel's command to forfeit her right as the parent to name her child. In other words, she surrenders to the Word of God even in her most intimate relationships, which in many ways is a picture of what it looks like today when Jesus comes into your life. Right On the one hand, yeah, he brings enormous blessing because he's the eternal king who came to save us from our sins. On the other hand, we also surrender our right to call the shots in life and often have to endure the shame of the world. Now, Mary doesn't start that way. Remember, she asks questions. She gives it thoughtful consideration, but eventually she moves to humble surrender. And so it might be worth asking yourself if you've done that yet. Have you yet crossed that threshold and said, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Because at the end of the day, it's the only way you're ever going to be able to reach that fourth and final stage that we see in Mary's journey, which is joyful worship. Joyful worship. We didn't read this earlier, but when the angel leaves, Mary packs her bags and she goes and visits her cousin, Elizabeth. Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist. And we're told when Mary arrives, John the Baptist leaps in Elizabeth's womb and Elizabeth cries out, Blessed are you, Mary, among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. Now, at least as Luke tells the story, it's only after this that Mary responds in joyful worship as if it's the words of Elizabeth that finally break down the barrier and open the floodgates of joy in Mary's life. And so she breaks out and was often called the Magnificat and says, My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. Some people sit on the sidelines waiting to experience a certain kind of buzz a certain kind of feeling before they commit themselves to God, as if they want to know the inexpressible joy that comes from knowing the grace of God before they actually commit to God. But don't miss the fact that with Mary, she submits first before she experiences the joy. 
uh, when C.S. Lewis, who was uh, a very notable, influential Christian intellectual of the previous century, when, when he first became a Christian, he described himself as perhaps the most reluctant convert in all of Christendom. In other words, there was not a whole lot of good vibes going on, and yet he knew it was the right thing to do. And yet he, he goes on to write later a book called Surprised by Joy. He knew joy. In fact, he even would go on to say, if you want to get warm, I'll bring it up. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to, listen to this, or even into the thing that has them. He says, don't just stand back and wait for joy to come to you. If you want joy, get close to, maybe even into the thing that has them. He's talking about Christ. Although I guess today, as we remember Mary's story, maybe we put it the other way around. If you want joy, then let the source of joy come into you. Now, for Mary, clearly that's easy. She literally had joy in her womb. Uh, but the promise of Christmas, the promise of the gospel, is that Christ, by his spirit, can also come to dwell with you. And so in the carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, we sing, O Holy Child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray, cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. It's a bold message about one we all need to experience if we're going to know and taste this joy this Christmas. So let me close. Some, some stories get better and better the more you read them. But Christmas is not just Ice Age or Emperor's New Groove. Christmas is the start of the greatest rags to riches story ever told. And by the grace of God, people like you and I can be a part of it. People like you and I can know what it is to be highly favoured by God. And so... Why not learn from Mary, respond as she did? The message of the angel is that the baby she would give birth to would grow up to be an eternal king and he was sent to save us from our sins. And so if you've never done it before, why not give it thoughtful consideration this Christmas? If you have questions, don't be afraid to ask them. But when the time is right, humbly surrender and then join your voice to ours as we join in joyful worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beauty of Christmas and that we remember the wonder of the Incarnation, your King sent to bring peace on earth one day. And we pray your kingdom come. In Jesus' name, amen.